Welcome to Habits for Happiness with Lady Fuller. The path to happiness is paved with healthy habits. We spend much of our lives searching for happiness when the key we're looking for is right there inside of us. We can discover that key through habit change, which you're about to learn about. Now, here is your host, Lady Fuller. Welcome to Habits for Happiness, the show where we discuss habits you can employ in your daily life to make you happier. Here on Habits for Happiness today to talk about the habit of reading is author and former coach and player for the Detroit Pistons basketball team, Ray Scott. Welcome, Ray. Thank you, lady. Ray is the author of MBA's In Black and White, the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach. And Ray is also an amazing human being. And Ray is a native of Philly. And he was chosen as the fourth pick in the 1961 NBA draft by the Detroit Pistons. He spent six years with the Pistons as a standout rebounder and deadly shooter from the perimeter. And another five years playing for the Baltimore Bullets and Virginia Squires. Then in 1972, Scott was promoted from assistant to head coach of the Detroit Pistons. Two years later in 1974, and this is amazing, Ray, he was named NBA Coach of the Year, the first African-American to win this award. Um, As I said, he is the author of NBA in Black and White, his newest memoir. And um, I'm so excited to have you here, Ray. Welcome. Thank you. And I mean, we talk about habits on this show, and I know obviously you have a life of perseverance and all these amazing things that have happened to you. But tell us why you chose the habit of reading. Uh, Because for, I think, the first six years of my life, being an only child, um, it was one of those escapes Mm -hmm. that I had uh, with, with just my mom. And I remember, and that's such a great question, too, because it opens up another door. My mom, as a, as a little guy, uh, my mother was a domestic, and she would bring me Life Magazine, Look Magazine, Ebony Magazine. This is pre-Jet. Jet came about <laughs> when Emmett Till was murdered in 1955. But as a little guy, I was really into the pictorials of mm. Because they had such exceptional photographers. Yes, yes. And I remember one of the first things I ever read. There was this huge fire uh, somewhere either on the East Coast. And the father wrote a poem. And I was a little guy and I never forgot it. And it was the first poem I ever memorized. And the name of the poem was Fern. And it said, gun no kill, fire no burn big, strong girl, call her firm. And wow. one of those fires. And so as a, as a kid, that stayed with me the rest of my life um, because it, it exacted a sadness in me, but a joy that I could share that, mm. um, that exploration of the fire because I was reading the words and so forth. So, and, and reading just kind of took off. And of course, a, around my home, everyone knows that I'm a big Hemingway fan. I'm oh, a, me too. Love Hemingway. Love See, I, I was at 19 in college in my sophomore year. Uh, I went with a very famous basketball player by the name of Elgin Baylor in Seattle. Mm-hmm. He took me to see A Farewell to Arms. Oh, Wow. At that time, this was like one of Rock Hudson's incredible movies with Jennifer Jones. And uh, it was a, by being an Ernest Hemingway movie, you know, I'm looking at all of the studly machismo stuff that we talked about with Hemingway, but then all of the tenderness that he had. Yeah. And so... When I um, I get I'm watching this movie, and what really it was like it was like the same thing with the poem as I'm watching this movie as a 19 year old. Rock Hudson breaks into tears over the loss of his wife and child, mm-hmm. and I had never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's just like Mr. Machismo, Rock Hudson, <laughs> four, two hundred pounds, you know, and this guy's crying. He wept. And that touch, I said, 
I got to get this book. Yeah. So I, I got a farewell to arms and I read that. And then uh, the sun also rises, rises old man in the sea. You know, I just became a Hemingway devotee, but coming through the sixties now at that's 19. Um, as I come out of college and I'm into the tumultuous sixties, now I'm into Richard Wright and, mm-hmm. and James Baldwin and, uh, uh, it was, an, it was another guy, Claude. I can't think of Claude's last name. But as I'm, then I began, you know, just vociferously grabbing everything I could read, ask, going into different bookstores, looking for different stuff because of the, the, the tumultuous 60s and how the world was changing because we were very kind of stayed and quiet country in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, but what changed for me in the 60s, lady, and I, I, I was kind of long, but I just wanted to get this. Yeah, out. no, I love it. What meant a lot for me coming out of that 19-year-old kid into the 60s was John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Mm. It never had an, a Catholic president. And yeah. you were like going bananas about <laughs> Because I'd gone to Catholic school, so we were like, man, we want to, you know, do everything we can. Right. We got to vote for John Fitzgerald. But one of the things that caught me in supporting his platform was he said, America wants to be inclusive of our African, not African-American, but of our Negro brothers and sisters. We want to include them as we go forward into our new frontiers. And I was like, oh, this guy's unbelievable. And I just, I mean, I just thought he was so head and shoulders about anything I'd ever heard politically. Right. <clears throat> and so he began talking about voting rights and civil rights, et cetera. However, that didn't happen because he was murdered. And mm-hmm. so Baines Johnson, his successor, made those wishes of JFK's into law. And paralleling that time, this is why we have the book, paralleling that time, that important time in our history, as we're struggling for civil rights, as we're struggling for voting rights and coming from the lunch counters and, you know, being able to sit down and order a meal, all of a sudden, I'm an NBA player. Mm-hmm. I'm playing basketball, my activity. And I became an, a basketball player, an NBA basketball player at the age of 22. Yes. Well, I want to go, I want to stop you because I want to go back to the reading when you, before we're a basketball player, because your story and your memoir is so riveting, if I can. But you said that you cut your teeth as a young child in libraries, yes. right? So that was something that was with you. The reading, like, it's almost like, the reading has woven its way through your life in all these incredible, incredible ways. And I just want to say for listeners, you know, Ray is a contemporary and friend of so many people that um, the history will recognize and including, you know, you've met Martin Luther King, you, when you were younger, you uh, looked up and saw, you know, played basketball with Will Chamberlain and, um and it's, I'm going to say his name wrong, Elgin Baylor, and also, you know, Aretha Franklin, you knew, and Muhammad Ali. I mean, this is amazing. So you, it's like this reading piece going through the history of your life, which is just incredible. And I want to just let viewers, I mean, listeners know that they may not know, and I didn't know this until I was researching you, that the NBA was segregated until 1950. And you, and there actually was a league, which I didn't know either, called the Black Fives before that. And then you were, and I'll let you take it from here, because this is where you were saying, you were recruited in 1961. So that was only 11 years after integration. So tell us about that time, because I can only imagine 11 years, at least in current time, isn't very long. Not much seems to change, right? As far as, you know, people's viewpoints. 1950 to 1960, mm-hmm. Kennedy year. Yeah. Um, in 1950, well, uh, uh, if I may, the, the story there is coming through those periods of sports in America. Yeah. 
sports in America, which had grown from the 1920s. This was the fun. This was another reading exploration. I read a guy named Grantland Rice. He was, mm-hmm. a, and Grantland Rice had this. It captured this time in the Roaring Twenties. Remember Roaring Twenties and the tumultuous Sixties or the sizzling Sixties. <laughs> greatest periods in the history of America, yeah. 254 years. In the roaring 20s, the athletes had never had front page. They would mm-hmm. get a blurb here, a blurb there. Well, all of a sudden, Grant and Rice has at his fingertips in the roaring 20s, then think of these names, Babe Ruth, mm-hmm. Jack Dempsey, the heavyweight champion of the world, the four horsemen, the great football players at Notre Dame, Red Grange, the galloping ghost. He named all of those guys, and sus- subsequently we got a what? A sports page. Yeah. So now we're getting reports who won the game night, who lost the game last night, whether the babe hit a home run and so forth and so on. So the sports pages became a major part of the Roaring Twenties under Grant and Rice. So if we spring ahead to the 60s with the establishment, the establishment then said, we're going to have leagues. Well, the league that akin to because I was a, a eight-year-old kid, a tall 18-year-old kid. And they, people say, oh, you, you're going to be a basketball player. I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> and so I, I was playing basketball. But what I recall in that era was the focus on racism mm. and how it became an institution. And you said you might say, well, Ray, how I mean, how could you do that? You're eight to twelve years old, you know, in that time, uh, in 1950. And the NBA started in nineteen fifty. And I was absolutely right. They integrated with Earl Lloyd, who was mm-hmm. the first person that played uh, uh NBA basketball, Sweetwater Clifton from your Harlem Globe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Chuck Cooper from University of Duquesne was drafted by the Boston Celtics. So now all of a sudden, three guys are seen in professional basketball that are African-Americans. Well, that just shook up the world. Now, this is in 1950. Yeah. As you pointed out. So over that 11-year period, they kind of... uh, in my book, I talk about it, allowed integration by bringing in these exceptional basketball players. Yeah, Wilt Chamberlain, maybe one of the best NBA players of all time. Well, Russell, who just Yeah, left. and, and I, I went to University of San Francisco, I should say. So Bill Russell was, when I got my MBA there. He was, he was the star still when I got my MBA in 19... 19- <laughs> 2000, early 2000s, he was still a legend there. For life, and I'll tell you why. And I love Bill Russell. The don't <laughs> not ever, ever, ever get me. I love the man. I love what he, what he stood for. But one of my most favorite people in my life that I have known attended USF. No one talks about it. I just put it on my Facebook page the other day. You know who was there? The great Johnny Mathis. He was? Yes. And he was the track team, the high jumper. If you look on my Facebook page. Oh, I will. I will. Johnny Mathis. Okay. USF. Adon. Okay. I got it. So far to the right when you tell people. I always (laughs) enjoy the shot. And I go, yes, he he was a high jumper and he out jumped by one inch. Wow. That's incredible. Very, uh, yes. So um, bring me back to um, getting drafted and what the NBA was like in 1961. But I, I have to stop at 55. Okay. Yeah, a lot of more side of me person to live my life 
And it was the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Accused of a crime, whistling at a woman or some such thing. So these, I believe, they sought to uh, get justice today, and so they beat him to death. And just terrible. And this was this captured the attention again. The reading the Life magazine at 16 years old. Uh, me, Emmett Till was 14. Mm. He was a 14. And so I was thought about, like most kids, how vulnerable I must be if that can happen to Emmett Till. And so that's what I carry into the 60s with John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Those those thoughts, those uh, premonitions of the... Yeah, just for listeners, can you tell us what happened to Emmett Till? Because I think I know his story, but others may not. He was accused and then... Oh, yeah, he was accused uh, in a candy store of, quote, unquote, whistling or assaulting, or but that none of proven. And it was something when somebody wants to hide something and they want to bury you immediately without sending your body back to your parents, uh, that would cause suspicion. Um, it was one of the great cases mm-hmm. of, in our neighborhood. Because in our neighborhood, we had Jet Magazine, and Jet Magazine promised and swore that they would follow the case. They had a writer by the name of Simeon Booker, and Mr. Booker wrote about that trial, uh, the evidence, every every week. It was So that's why it came to be so prominent to me. I'd get my little 15 cents and go buy my Jet Magazine every mm-hmm. week uh, to write about Emmett Till. That was a big thing, 1955-60. But like I said earlier, uh, when 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 John uh, Fitzgerald Kennedy, when JFK came to bear with a promise of including the African and the Negro in the American, uh, how will you say, fabric, mm-hmm. uh, held a great interest for me. Well, you know, parallel that with back. Bill Russell had literally been the only African-American man to win a gold medal in basketball. Mm -hmm. So that in 1960, when they had the Olympic team, it was Oscar Robertson, a kid by the name of Walt from Indiana, and another young man by the name of, I think, Bob Boozer from Kansas. Mm -hmm. Three African. Well, makes his announcement. In 1960, by 1964, that group had grown to where almost half the team was African-American. Wow. I I credit JFK with that because he was changing the fabric and the view of America. And Mm. to me, it was important reading all of these books about life in the South and because I was obviously in But what really translated in 1950, for me again, to D.C. in 1950 as a 12-year-old and found out that Washington, D.C. was segregated. And it was segregated by sign. Negroes to the back or colored bathrooms or white water fountains. And so that's how, as I grew older, I began to understand systemic racism. You can't eat in here. You can't... My, yeah. my, uncle who was a us to D.C., as we go from Philadelphia to well, that's a different proposition because you're excited to get to your destination. But returning home is where you're faced with all of those actual things that I learned in D.C. I was told I couldn't sit in the first row of a movie theater, that I had to sit in the balcony. I was told that I had to go to the back of a bus. I was told that uh, it was the back of the bus, back of the, the train or somewhere. I mean, it was just incredible. I'm not, and I'm, I'm a 12-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a son who's 12 years old. So it's it's amazing to think of how, you know, obviously he's he's not African-American, but just at 12, how impressionable we are and how it does shape who we become. And your view. And your, your view, story. right. Yeah. Oh, 
Because what happens, in my opinion, as a 12-year-old, your eyes open because you become stronger, you become more aware, your brain takes in more visual mm-hmm. information. You, you, you're like, as a kid, you see everything. Yeah. So now that's my 1950, but I'm taking that 1950 up to 1961 as an NBA player world changes. And so in my book, I never tried to present myself, never, 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 as this poor kid from a third floor walk up that was poor and this, and we didn't have that. We didn't know we were poor. Everybody was poor. Everyone. So we uh, think being poor, what we tried to do, and as I recall, like I'm sure we tried to share and care. You know, we, mm. we looked out for each other. I was growing up with that proposition. Always take care of the person next to you, Ray. Always look out for, <clears throat> uh, don't ignore. And I learned so many lessons growing up like that, being aware. And I learned a lot of those lessons at 12 years old, coming through that period, you know, yeah. uh, your eighth, ninth, 10th grade, you know, mm-hmm. and you're 15, 10th grade, but when you go back 14, 13, 12, all of those things that you're seeing are going to form your character, in my opinion. Absolutely. I mean, this is very, this is the, you know, Carl Jung 101. <laughs> so if, you know, if if who we are at 12 and you at 12, you know, are seeing systemic racism, but you're also seeing that you belong to a group of people who are at least in your opinion, in your neighborhood or being kind to one another and caring for one another, there's this great sort of juxtaposition between the two, right? There's this, this feeling like I'm part of something, I'm part of this group, but then I'm also not part of this group. And there's a, there's a dichotomy there. And then, and then to fast forward, you're introduced to being on sort of like the, the, you know, very famous stage, which is the NBA. So then a platform from which to work from. So and then I would say all the reading that you've done, right? It opens worlds. I'm a huge reader and I spend a lot more time with books than I probably do with people, but I think that <laughs> books are safe. But the but the it opens us up to a world that's well beyond the worlds we live in, right? So it shows us places just yes. like JFK showed you from a leadership perspective, this world that lies beyond our own worlds and what we can imagine to right. be true. Right. And that's really beautiful. We exist on. Well said. This little blue dot that we exist on, suspended. And I, I, I always wonder about people. You understand we're walking around on a planet suspended in the air. And spinning. Uh, and spinning. No, uh, yeah, and we're all and we're all specks of stardust, right? So that's science, not woo woo. So, so therefore, yes. <laughs> The uh, that that period that uh, I chose to write about, and and I wanted to be very in my book and talking about it, I was like this poor poor. Kid. I was a kid, money in his pocket. I was flown out to Detroit as a draft pick of the Detroit Pistons. I was issued a contract. And my cotton, now this will blow your our, our, our listeners' minds. I was in a contract in 1961. It was a two-year contract. Yippee. And it was for 25,000 years. And of the $25 that I was, the level that I was getting to, $1,000 was a bonus, which meant what? I home. Back to Philadelphia with $1,000 in my pocket in 19. 19- 61. Can you imagine the kind of money that must have been? Yeah, small fortune, right? <laughs> you get a car, you get uh, clothing, you know, you can give your mother something. I mean, it was like, oh, this is so great. And so, but my, um, remember, I'm still seeing that world of talking about voting rights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we want our parents to be able to vote, do something that they've had great difficulty in doing. Uh, we wanted uh, we, we we our stats, so statures lifted up, and I just you 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 talked earlier about uh, Aretha. I knew of Miss Franklin from her singing. She's obviously at at nineteen. She was an excellent singer, 
club a basketball game in Indianapolis, Indiana, on a stool. The is packed. There's one lady, there's one open seat in the Mrs. First set. She comes down into the audience and people say, great job, great job, you singer. And she sat down in the one stool that was vacant in the bar and it was next to me. Oh, how lucky are you? <laughs> Boy, from my lips to God's ears. And I'm like, oh, so good. And we we became friends because we were, I was 22. I think she was 20 or 21. And she just talked about how living in Detroit, her life in Detroit, her children, because she had children at that time. And we talked about, you know, she was telling me places to go and uh, to see and that you're a new Detroit Piston and I hope to see you, uh, you know, play. And, and that was like, she became like that iconoclastic friend, no matter yeah. where she, she was my friend. Oh, I love that. And Ray, I'm going to stop you because we have to go to break, but I want to leave us on a cliffhanger, which this is, which is talking about your relationship with Aretha Franklin. And we've got more relationships to cover because I know you're also friends with Muhammad Ali and with the civil rights movement, which we haven't covered the 60s yet. We're still in the early 60s. Um, So everybody hang tight. We'll be right back in a couple minutes with the beautiful and wonderful Ray Scott, who's sharing his life story with us. Um, Such an honor. Thanks, everyone. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Try out a free coaching session with your host, Lady Fuller, to learn more about our individualized and corporate coaching programs. Learn to drop bad habits and pick up healthier habits to live a healthier life. Email her at lady at happinessmba.com. That's L-A-D-Y at happinessmba.com. Or check out our coaching business at habits, the letter for happiness.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Want to reward clients, customers, or employees with a gift that will blow their socks off? We at International Gifting Company have your next corporate event covered. We carry 250 personalized gifts for on-site incentive events. Or we can create virtual gift boxes your employees and clients can receive at home. Contact us today for a quick and free proposal. We love to wow! Contact info at intlgiftingco.com or check out our webpage at intlgiftingco.com. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Habits for Happiness. To reach the show today, call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now, back to our program, and here again is Lady Fuller. Yes, and we're back. Thanks, everyone, for hanging in there. We're back with the amazing Ray Scott and talking about his friendship with Aretha Franklin, which blossomed as she sat on a bar stool next to him when he was 22 and she was 19. Totally amazing story. And and how she became, obviously, your friend. As you were saying over the break, she was just a baby at the time. And uh, yeah, part two uh, of Aretha Franklin as progressed through those 60s. In 1966, uh, 66, 67, unfortunately for me, the Pistons decided to trade me. And they were trading me to all 
Baltimore to the Baltimore Bullets. And so the night before I leave, I get on a plane to leave Detroit to go to Baltimore. Who do I go see with my friends on a team? I had a couple and they took me out and they said, we're going to take you out. We're going to, you know, wish you goodbye and so forth. We go to the club and we go see Aretha Franklin. Oh, amazing. And there she is on stage. And she's, and this is true story as God is in his heaven. She said, in the audience, ladies and gentlemen, is my friend Ray Scott. And he has been traded. And I want to dedicate this next song to him. And as, as she was not singing quite in the rhythm and blues era yet, she was still singing pop from Broadway and from popular tunes. And she said, mm-hmm. I want to dedicate to Ray Scott the song you're going to hear from me. And uh, you could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> I love this. This is a great story. Beautiful song. And I'm traded away. And in 1972, as I'm traded away and I played four years for the... Uh, Baltimore Bullets, two years with the Virginia Squires. I retire. I'm working in the front office of Virginia. I'm called back to Detroit to be an assistant coach. And I come back to Detroit as an assistant coach. And after seven games as an assistant coach, I become a head coach. After one year as a coach, as a head coach, the next year I was designated as the NBA coach of the year. Yes, this is a tremendous honor, especially you're the first African-American to receive this honor. Unbelievable. I mean, I'm, you know, but that's a whole, that's another story. That's another chapter. (laughs) I happened to go to a club called a 20 grand in uh, uh, Detroit. And at the 20 grand, who do I see coming up the steps as I'm coming out of the club from the set that I had enjoyed, but Miss Franklin with her husband, Ted White. And, you know, we just shook hands. I mean, we didn't have a, but I just, I thought to myself, aha, I told you, and you told them, you're going to hear from me. And I was, yes. I never forgot that. Oh, I love that. It's a wonderful full circle story of just how the universe works as we're spinning on this rock around the sun. So take us through you know, here you are playing in the 1960s as a player and later as a coach through the civil rights movement, right? So you had the privilege of meeting Martin Luther King. Um, and how was it being an NBA star during that period? Tell us. It was difficult because you're, you're kind of on both sides of the street. I know it was difficult for me. For instance, mm. in, in the 1960s, 61 era, I want to say, Medgar Evers was mm-hmm. murdered. The three mm-hmm. kids in New York were murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cheney and uh, well, two kids in New York, Schwerner and Goodwin were from New York, uh, two Jewish kids that laid down their lives uh, along with uh, Cheney for us to have a vote. So these things are occurring. I mean, these are hard occurrences. Malcolm X is uh, assassinated. The Kennedys are assassinated. This is the 60s. This is all in one period. This is not like happening throughout 100 years or 50 years. Yeah. One encapsulated period. And we we are witness to that. But we are also, in my opinion, victimized by that. Because that leadership, mm. that that clarity of thought, that direction is taken away from our people when you have those types of things. So when we lose LBJ, not LBJ to that extent, but when we lose JFK, Bobby Kennedy, uh, when we lose Martin Luther King, when we lose Malcolm X, uh, we have well, we did have the dear Rosa Parks. But when we lose this type of leadership, I believe it costs us greatly. Because it takes mm-hmm. a direction and a, and a filament to what you believe in and how you are progressing. Um, but it's a, it's a great country. And so I was looking at the parallel of our country versus how the NBA was growing. 
Yeah, because there's these like two, again, like these two dichotomies, because in the NBA, you're playing on a team with, you know, Caucasian individuals, right? So you're on this team, but then the team that is the U.S. is like a very divided team. So it's a very interesting parallel, I think. It's who you bring to the table. And and I'm, I mean, that, that's the, that is, it's not, the answer is not in the book. The answer is within you. Mm, I love this. Yes. About how we are progressing as a nation. That's who the questions are for. I didn't write a book to give you answers. I wrote a book to ask you questions. What is your perception? And I talk about different things that happened to me. I don't say they happened to me because this was the owner or the general manager or my teammate. I didn't assign that. I'm asking you the question, viewing this happenstance that I wrote about and shared with you from my soul, what is it you think? Mm, You think about America. What do you think about the NBA? I love the NBA because what they began to do is bring people to the table. I coached when there were three African-American coaches. Today, as we speak, there's 15, one right there in Louisiana that I love, Mm -hmm. 15. African-American coaches. So that shows me that there's an an acceptance and an opening and a believability to what John Fitzgerald Kennedy said, what he was teaching about the inclusivity. I've seen it work. I've seen it. What do you think? Are you asking me? (laughs) I think that the NBA is an interesting like all sports teams, they're an interesting sort of context, right? Because, um, you know, at least let's use the NBA as an example. There's more African-American players haven't done the data research, I would suggest, than than players of other, um, you know, of other colors, right? So there's, it's, you know, so there's other, it's dominated by um, African-American players. And at the same time, you have a country that, that reveres and honors these national sports leagues, but also at the same time, in my opinion, we've made some progress since 1960s or a lot of progress, but maybe in the past 20 years, I feel like we've regressed some. And, um, but the praise and the accolades for the sports teams is like this separate thing. And to me, it's a very, it's an interesting dichotomy how one person can believe one thing in one area of their life and then not practice that in another area of their life. And I I find that confusing, but I also think we, we as human beings are quite confusing. And I think our work, uh, if you ask what I think, I think our work as like spiritual, you know, uh, mature human beings, especially Americans, is to integrate those views so that we can not, you know, we don't reserve one set of feelings for one one thing and then another set of feelings for the other thing. Because if we have the ability to have one set of feelings that is positive, then we have that ability to feel those feelings across all sets of ourselves. And I think that, you know, for some reason, people are holding on to old limiting beliefs that they might have learned when they were 12 or something that don't serve us as Americans. And they become not only dangerous, but deadly. And so, you know, I think, again, the work is just educating people like you are with your book about these sort of like differences. I think most people don't probably even realize that, you know, here they are rearing sports players, but in other areas, you know, you have these, um, these, these horrible things that are happening in the U S you know, racially. So, so I, I, that's my view. I think that we, it's, it's just more of like a social, it's just so interesting. And I wish that some of the work that was done in the civil rights movement was like a hockey stick, but that's not how the world works. Right. It's a cha-cha. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, you, you use two, two, two terms, two adjectives, revere and honor. And mm-hmm. honor is a very dicey thing because it's something that's under your control. Mm-hmm. And by those two things being under your control, you decide where they go and where they're pulled back. Mm-hmm. Not the person receiving. And so... What I look for 
and what I pray for is equality. Yeah. So look at each other as equals. A lot of those things will disappear and we'll probably have to get some of them back, I guess. But a lot of those things will disappear into the ill will that comes as a, re- as a result of a person's skin color, as a result of a person's faith, as a result of, you know, all of those things that we can find to dislike each other. And now yeah. you can allow that in my opinion, in the sports world. So that's what makes, that's why sports are so healthy. Well, there's such a wonderful equalizer in that way, but why can't it be a greater, you know, metaphor for everything? And that's what I'm kind of saying. Uh, Yeah, I I, I get what, I mean, that's what, um, I just, um, I just wish that from the time that I have grown up in sports until now, I'm, I'm an octogenarian. And I just wish that we could see each other as just people, as humans that we are on earth, we need to cooperate with one another. And, so, and it may be Pollyannish, but I, but I believe that can happen if we open our eyes, our hearts, and our brains. But if we- Well, let's go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, but I was just going to say that if you leave one of those out, one of those elements out, then we're we're sorely sorely lacking. And that's and that's I have I I mean my greatest possession in my life, my greatest love of my life is my wife and my kids. That that just sustains me, and that's what I've all and I, and of course my grandson now that he's growing up. I want to leave the world a better place. Just like you're, I am just like you're, I want to enjoy life, but I want to leave it a better place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and you are, and I think let's bring it back to the reading, right? So you're writing. And writing, what I, the reason that I, I, I love the book is because it taught me so much, my research my reading, you know, I, I remember I'm a kid that grew up on the classics, the Corsican brothers. Yes. The, yes. Kinetic Yankee and King Arthur's Court. I mean, I grew up and I cut my teeth on the classics, um, and that's and and that was what the classics do is it teaches you how to research, how to look for answers, uh, how to find quality where people will tell you it doesn't exist. You know, I, I just did a piece the other day uh, on. Uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, just as an aside. It's just in my brain. And what a resourceful, thoughtful, good man he was. And yet his name is used in a pejorative sense. And I, and I can stop that. No, stop. That's not true. That's not what Mrs. Stowe meant. That's how, in my opinion, we, we, we stop that onslaught. Uh, or listening to someone say to me, the Confederacy. And I went, there is no Confederacy. You lost the war. I'm not trying to start anything. <laughs> there is no such civilization. We are Americans. Yes. 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 That's what I meant by finding those levels of equality. And uh, I'm still trying to find that. I'm still looking. Yeah. You know, I think it's like, this sounds very woo-woo, but, you know, if we could just see each other as souls, if we could just see each other as humans, I think that sounds very overly simplistic, but that we would, you know, be able to then cross that divide. And um, if you're a fan of reading, like I am, and you are Bill Bryson, who's a hysterical author, and who's written many, many different things, but he recently read a, wrote a book maybe a couple of years ago called The Body, and it was like a scientific look at sort of our biology, right, and all the different parts of our bodies. And he said in his book that the only thing that separates races is about a fourth inch of epidermis, cool. and that's it. And so everything else in the body is like 99.99% the same. And I actually like, you know, obviously knew that, but reading it in his book was so pivotal for me um, in understanding that we've built such walls around a fourth inch of epidermis, which I thought was an incredible statement. And 
um, something that I think if we can see beyond our fourth inch of skin, <laughs> and then we have the incredible ability to create equality. Yeah, it's really, it's an amazing, it's an amazing concept and very overly simplistic, but not really, right? So, so I want to bring it back to basketball. Of Yeah, yeah. No, I want to bring it back to basketball today here in 2022. So tell us about how basketball is different today than it was when you coached and, and played. <laughs> I thought this would be a good question. That's, you know, because it's changed because basketball, which was a spectator sport, mm-hmm. you if you wanted to see the greatest basketball players in the world, the Kareem's, the Russell's, the Chamberlain's, uh, pre Magic Johnson and pre Larry Bird, it was a spectator sport, and it was made up of these all American basketball players that went to these cities and represented these cities, and that was great. And we would draw, you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand, five thousand. If you if you were drawing five or six thousand people a night, you were doing great. The change is television. The game mm. that you watch that my friend, that's not the game we play. That's not the fundamental big game, the Kareem, the Wilt, the Russell, uh, the Thurman, the Bellamy, these great men of size. They were all colossus, 6'11", seven feet, powerful guys, and they would score unbelievably and they were just great players and people looked at them walking down the street like they were uh the colossus of roads you know well that's not the game today the greatest mm-hmm. walking down the street today is what is a six three kids by the name of steph curry oh i love him <laughs> he's revered in this house and um <laughs> so there's this guy that shoots the ball amazingly from far away from the basket. Well, for you, to educate you, just as a little insight, we were taught growing up, the furthest away from the basket that you were, that is the worst shot to take. Well, I knew there was no three-pointers, right? This was, (laughs) there's no (laughs) three-pointers. Not that far away. You'd be sitting on the bench next to the coach. Mm -hmm. So that game has totally changed and it has that that fundamental game that we grew up with, that game is gone. The new game is a game that's built on distance from the basket and athleticism. How great an athlete are you? How how many ways can you dunk a basketball? You know, you know when ESPN has on their highlight show the five best dunks last night. They don't say the five shots. They don't say the five uh, best plays. It's dunks and guys shooting far away from the basket. It's become a televised game and an athletic game. And so it has changed, but it is, it's, it's, I think it's going to become beautiful, but I think it's going to go back. I think like any any pendulum, you're going to swing real far one way. But trust me, it's going to swing back the other way. It will come. Yeah. And, and Oh, that'll be interesting. Going to be interesting. It is going because coaches coach to win. Coaches don't coach so you can look good shooting three-pointers. So <laughs> it's come back to how can I best win the game? And I still believe you best win the game by getting the most shots the closest to the basket that you can get. Oh my gosh. We could do a whole radio show on this and we could also talk about all of the culture, right? I am a big Greg, San Antonio Spurs fan. Also Greg Popovich is connection style. He's really amazing. But in the time we have remaining, please tell us if people want to find more of you and they want to buy your book, please tell us how they can do that. Well, Jennifer and I check Amazon every day. So we're, that's been a primary focus because okay. of being online and with the pandemic. People, you know, out shopping, that doesn't happen very much. So we recommended that. 
but we also recommend Barnes and Noble. It's on the bookshelves at Barnes and Noble. Okay. One of my friends just went to a Barnes and Noble yesterday in Philadelphia and said, I bought the last book. Now, I don't know how. Oh, that's wonderful. Go out and buy your last, the last books. (laughs) NBA in black and white. NBA in black and white. But Barnes and Noble, uh, and then I, I think they do Kmart. You do. Uh, not not Kmart, Walmart and Target. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walmart, Target, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and uh, there you are. I mean, it, I I think it's it's not what I would call a great read. It's what I would call a friendly read because it's written from my soul. Oh, I love that. And I just want to close with the idea that you gave us that you don't have the answers. You want people to read it and come up with their own answers, right? You ask them the questions because that is what the habit of reading brings to all of us is our ability to look beyond ourselves and see worlds and others in ways we haven't before. Right. And that's the beautiful gift of your book. You said it just like a Hemingway lover. I am a Hemingway lover. And (laughs) I have to say, my dad saw Hemingway across the bullring in Barcelona, Spain, when he was in his 20s. And it was maybe one of the best highlights of his life. So, and he was, and for Hemingway fans, Hemingway was a lover of the (laughs) bullring. So in that, we will close. Ray, thank you so much for being here. It was my honor. It really was. I mean, I just, this was an amazing conversation I could talk to you all day. And everybody else, go look at your local bookstore on Amazon for MBA in Black and White, Ray Scott's amazing memoir. And tune in next week for another riveting conversation about a habit that could change your life. Thank you for tuning in to Habits for Happiness. Please join Lady Fuller for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, discover how to find your new happy place.